Hello everybody, welcome to the Williams Project podcast and this is episode 35. Now we have an exciting guest for you today, Ed McKnight from OPES. He's the leading economist and an absolutely amazing human being um, and he's going to talk to us today about the economics behind property. So welcome, Ed. Thank you so much for coming in here. Oh, Matt, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here, mate. <laughs> so I'll, I'll um, just sort of tell the viewers about who you are. So Opez is an investment property advice firm, and you're their leading economist. Um, so Ed, Opez, they put out amazing content. You should absolutely be seeing what they're putting out into the marketplace. They have one of the leading podcasts, business podcasts in New Zealand, and they do a massive amount of investment property advice to customers. So it's really great to have an independent person now, Ed is someone who is unapologetically himself, he only ever says what he thinks, Uh, so it's going to be really interesting for myself and for you the listeners to hear what he has to say. So what I wanted to talk about today Ed was how you how you recommend a property to a client so how you make a decision about a city how you make a decision about a suburb and how you make a decision about a product based on the massive pool of data that that you trawl through on a daily basis and it may be some assumptions you had that have changed or assumptions you've had that have been bang on and just talk through that because I the stats are one thing, but I think it's important for the listeners to hear the decision-making process probably more than the stats, if that makes sense. Yes, and I think one thing that's quite often missed, Matt, uh, in property investment, and when people talk about property investment in general, is they give a lot of absolutes. So they say, oh, you should definitely invest in this area, or you should definitely do property investment this way. That's not the case. The truth is that everybody should do property investment based on who they are and what's going to work for them. There are so many different strategies strategies, there are so many properties you could investment invest in, and they will either be good investments or bad investments, not based on what those properties are, but on based on who you are and your strategy and what strategy is going to work for you. you well, know, if you have the best property in the world and you exit the investment too early, it's a bad investment. Yeah, and uh, like even if we can just talk about Williams Corp stock for a minute, that stock and those properties are going to be really good for some investors, but are going to be bad for other investors. Completely you know? agree. So if you're the sort of investor who wants to build instant equity, wants to renovate properties, your properties are not going to be the right ones yeah, for them, right? completely agree. Because if you did any changes to a Williams Court property or another developer's property, you're going to overcapitalize. Or, or just devalue it in general. <laughs> you, you could do that as well. But any money you spend on it isn't going to increase its value. Yep. You know, new properties work really, really good for very, very long-term investors who want a hands-off investment. Whereas existing properties that you do renovate and hold for a long time or renovate and flip are going to be better for people who have that more trading, trade-based strategy. Have the skill set as well. Or have the skill set, time and ability to be able to renovate and flip and do that kind of thing. So I always want to first of all start by disclaiming first of all that there are lots of different strategies that people can use and the right sort of properties depends on the strategy that is right for you as a person. And I do say that as a person and what the relationship that you want to have to your portfolio. Yeah, because I find the renovation discussion really interesting. So we actually started in the property development world by renovating. Um, And I think it's a great discussion, but also it's a lot harder than people think. 
like you get in and you try add value to a property and do it in a way where you still make a margin it is actually a very complicated process and and I really discourage I try not to encourage the average mum and dad or a doctor or a lawyer from thinking that they can just roll up their sleeves and make a property work because there's so many moving parts and it's so easy to overcapitalize and end up in a property with negative equity that's right but and it, it does depend on what you're trying to do so on the property academy podcast we actually talked about the other day we had a cli- uh, not a client a listener message in and say hey look I'm on a kind of average income at the moment I in 15 years I want to have passive income of three hundred thousand dollars good goal you know how can I do that well I mean it, it's good to be aspirational but the simple fact is that that's probably not going to be achievable for this person you know you've got to be uh, certainly not if you take a standard long-term investment approach where you buy new properties and hold them for a long time you'd have to buy 20 of them to make that happen you know I ran the numbers it worked out you'd have to buy 20 right now now on an average income you're not going to be able to get the money from the bank in terms of servicing and similarly if you're on an average income you most likely do not have the equity to be able to do that so instead if that is the goal you'd have to take more of a trade-based strategy or a or a reno uh, reno and hold strategy in order to be able to build up the equity and the income to be able to do go and build such a large passive income in a very short space of time 15 years in property is quite a short time really yeah, it goes in a flash we've just hit year 10 and it's like feels like yesterday yeah exactly so look I mean to answer your big question um, about how do you go through the process the first thing I do want to just disclaimer is um, the, the process I tend to look for the one that I run at Opus is we are we are running the strategy of buying properties for the long term 15 years plus and holding them over that period and the people we tend to work with and so the advice that well this isn't you know, obviously yeah, 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 personalised yeah. financial advice, but the things we've got to talk about is based around following that strategy. And I do want to disclaimer that because that's going to get, you're going to understand why we make the decisions and we go through the processes we do because it's all about how can we create a property portfolio that's going to both grow in value, but it's going to be really easy to accumulate and hold over that time. So we're looking for certainty. We're looking at having low maintenance. We're looking for not having to be actively there at your properties, you know, so for instance, we will talk about potentially um, having properties in the cities that you don't live in. So if you live in Christchurch, you could buy in Auckland and Wellington and Hamilton and build up that portfolio. You can do that if you're buying properties that are quite hands-off. You can't do that if you're going to be a really hands-on investor who's going to be renovating because in order to make the economics work, you're possibly going to be doing a lot of that yourself. So you know the, the way you accumulate your property portfolio really depends on the strategy that you want to take. But that's not what a lot of people talk about because it, it seems quite obvious when you put it in that context that you can't renovate a property in Christchurch if you live in Auckland but these these are just the things you actually have to think through and actually um diversifying your portfolio to have a mix of cities in there is probably a really smart thing to do and if you you even have a mix of um properties that you can hold like new properties over a long time then that makes sense you know it makes sense within that strategy so yeah, I, I want to dive into location a bit more. So in, in Williams Corporation, we're big believers in cities. We believe that cities will be where the primary growth is in society moving forwards. And there's a whole lot of economic documents that support that theory. So in New Zealand, we choose Christchurch, Wellington and Auckland because they're the largest cities and that's where we feel customers have the most potential for growth, most certainty for tenants and most certainty for the future buyer when they come to on-sell the property. Do you want to talk about 
if you agree with that opinion and maybe what other places you think are valuable. Let's start with the, the city fundamental. What, what do you think of cities versus, say, provinces? Yeah, look, I mean, we are very big believers in investing in the main centres. The, the main reason behind that comes back to what I was just talking about, which is the sort of people that we deal with want that stability. Because what you do see in the main centres is you have more diversified employment. If I can just talk about my hometown, I come from Hawara. Do you know where that is? No. So Hawara is a small farming town based in South Taranaki. The whole district has uh, 10,000 people living there. Most of the economy is based around Fonterra. So we had have the biggest dairy factory in the southern hemisphere located in Hawara. Big farming town. And uh, there's also silver firm farms have a big factory around there because it's a farming province. Yeah, um, but it just takes one problem with milk or Fonterra do a new business strategy where they move that factory somewhere else and all of a sudden what happens to the property prices in that region. That's right. So it is a bit of a what we call a one-horse town or a one-trick yeah. pony where if something happened to that in that region, property prices would suffer because incomes would suffer. So I tend to prefer uh, those more diversified uh, economies because if something bad happens to one particular industry then you've still got that buffer you've still got some employment in there and what you do see when an economic downturns is people tend to move to the cities because there's employment there and so we're even seeing it in queenstown right now tourism's been kicked in the teeth and their economy and their house prices are hurting. That's right. So in Queenstown, uh, 18% of their economy is made up of tourism in Queenstown Lakes District, and actually it's probably more concentrated than that in Queenstown. West Coast, similarly, 16% of their economy is made up of tourism. And so because of because we expect to see that fall over, we are seeing rents decrease there. For instance, we know uh, property managers uh, have been telling us, those who listen to our podcast, are saying that about 30% rent drops are what they're seeing down in Queenstown at the wow. moment. Because Just as a landlords benchmark. As a benchmark, though, what's Auckland's tourism statistic? It's about. Is it like seven or eight? No, it's about five percent oh, from wow. the from the last thing that the last stats that I saw. It was roughly five percent. Sorry, I don't have the decimal place in there as well. But that is also biased upwards. And the reason that's biased upwards is a lot of people fly through Auckland and then will fly down to Christchurch, will fly uh, to Queenstown, or you know to another destination. And so you see people come through the airport, and that's counted towards that that GDP. But it's, it's not necessarily impacting other businesses apart from the likes of Air New Zealand or, or Auckland International Airport. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense completely. So do you, do you have anything else you want to sort of dive in on location before we maybe talk about suburbs? Yes, the main thing that I want to talk about uh, in terms of regions in particular is we track the price of a region relative to the New Zealand median house price. So what's really important to know is that all of the different regions around New Zealand are operating on different property cycles. So when you look at the New Zealand median house price, and this is something I've pulled you up a few times for on the uh, on the old Facebook, Matt, um, you could see uh, the New Zealand median house price increase even though Auckland's really flat and Wellington might be booming, which has actually been the case over the last four yep. years, right? And so that would make the average house price continue to increase, but Auckland's really flat, so it's in a bit of a, a trough, while Wellington might be going through a boom period. Now, what you want to do, and the thing that I really believe in, is tracking a measure of, well, how is each region's median house price going compared to where it historically has been relative to the New Zealand median house price? And look, if that's a bit uh, complicated... But, but <laughs> as, a, as a, a benchmark, to, to but a humble builder... Um, if the New Zealand median house price is rising every single month, as an investor, can you feel safe that 
I have properties in this marketplace and I'm going to reap some reward. Not, like you, you not can, necessarily, and I'll tell you why. You can make I think some that. base assumptions. Like if every single month the New Zealand house price is going up by 10,000, 15,000, you can make an assumption where, yes, the, the national house price might be moving because of more aggressive markets like Auckland and Wellington, um, but my wee property in Christchurch, I'm still going to see some benefit from that. Over the long term, you yeah. would expect that. I would say over the long term, not month to month. Um, but one thing that I, I really want to point out is the likes of West Coast. Over the last, and I don't have the exact numbers, but over the last 12 years, because I track the West Coast quite closely, because it is the one region where house prices are not increasing and are unlikely to increase, because they are the only region in New Zealand that has a declining population. Over the next 20 years, the West Coast is expected to see a population decrease of 3%. So I don't believe that even though the New Zealand median house prices are increasing, that we will see house price inflation in the West Coast. So um, I, I'm a big believer that you can't buy anywhere, just anywhere. Now, that, and I that's think why we push cities very hard. I actually completely agree with you. I, I think the provinces are going to really suffer moving forwards and the cities are going to boom. And every major economy in the world, that's been the case. And what we do see, though, that I, I, I should mention as well, is that if you look at uh, um, house price inflation across the whole country, there's, a, there's quite little deviation over a 20-year period between small towns and the larger cities. So you might see like 1% more growth year on year, annual compounding growth, so it does add up, of course, um, between the likes of Christchurch and Ahawara, where I grew up in. But you've also got to look at, well, what do I think is going to happen going forward? Um, how, how stable are the rental markets? A whole heap of other factors that you're kind of looking at. So it's not necessarily that there is massive disparity between the cities and, you know, the bigger cities and the smaller towns, excluding Auckland, of course, because Auckland's a bit of a different case, and we can get into that if you like. Um, but it's much easier, and, and it's my belief, that it's much easier to hold a property and to have confidence in a property that's based in one of the major centres. Because even if we look at during previous recessions, the regions are more likely to decrease in house price and have more severe decreases in house price relative to the cities. So over 20 years, the outcome of investing in a small town versus a major city, and just in terms of, of median house price, may not be that different. But what is different is the holding costs, the ability to purchase it, and actually the quality of stock. Because, and quality um, of tenants as well. Yes, exactly. Um, because there's more fluctuation within some of those smaller towns. So I think that's really important to note as well. Yep, that's a, fantastic. Absolutely great. We're so so lucky to have you here, mate. Um, so let's now, so we've chosen a city, right, whether it be Auckland, Wellington or Christchurch, I don't mind what one. Let's go Auckland because Auckland's quite an interesting example. How would you then advise on a suburb? Um, we as a business thought that the western belt of Auckland was quite undervalued and the decision-making process we made around that was Auckland CBD is obviously very expensive. Um, you then have the adjoining suburbs to the CBD, which are very expensive. You then have this wee belt right from Tiaratu Peninsula down to um, Newland, where we can build a two-bed with a car park for six fifty. And then you go out to another development, which is called Hobsonville Point, which is another 10, 15 minutes past, and a two-bed with a car park is like a million. So we, we, we felt that we found like an undervalued strip 
what would be your economic opinion on that um, and, and not just that strip but how do you choose an area and what's your thought process around it? Yes, yes, yes. Now this is this is fascinating and actually if I can just give a wee plug, we've, we've done an amazing and I get so, I geek out about this stuff, but we've, we have created some amazing maps on the Opus Partners website that shows that the last 20 years of capital growth for every suburb in Auckland, Christchurch, Hamilton, Wellington. Um, so you can actually go around and hover over the different suburbs yourself and see that growth. That's and great information. Th- and then see the gross yields. Because the big thing that I want to get across to people listening to this is that it's not just about historic capital growth. You've also got to look at yield. And the other thing I should say is I only mention historical capital growth as a proxy for good fundamentals. Historic performance of a suburb doesn't necessarily indicate that you're going to continue to get really high capital growth uh, in the future. But the big question that we're trying to answer here is, well, how do you narrow down the number of properties that you look at so that you get to just a few that you can conduct more due diligence on? Like, This is really the process we're talking about. And what I would suggest that we do is try and find suburbs that have a really good mix of capital growth, previous historical capital growth, as a proxy for good fundamentals that we can then go and do some more due diligence on, and good current gross yields. Yeah. And so the process that we usually do, it's quite simple, is we look at these maps and we say which are the suburbs that have tend to get decent gross yields and which are the areas that tend to have historically uh, reasonable capital growth that we can then investigate more. So it's quite a simple process. And you are right, Matt, that if you look at those kind of outer suburbs of the isthmus, the central isthmus, so I am talking about like Avondale, yep. um, Sunnyvale, that kind of Teatro to South, also on the other side of that, that kind of central island of Auckland, um, you know, the Mount Wellingtons um, only hung it to some degree, you know, you get reasonably good yields there and have historically seen quite good capital growth, which I anticipate will continue in the future because you have real lack of land supply. One thing that's quite interesting, you probably, you may or may not have done this yourself, Matt, but you can walk across from Auckland Central to Onehunga in about four hours. It's a, it's the coast to coast walk, and you and you walk over all of the different mountains, and it's only sixteen k. So the reason I tell that story is there is so little land in, in, in those kind of mid-central Auckland suburbs. It is, it's like a little island. There are only two little parts that it can join well, going up to Northland. Yeah, and uh, even I was up in, um, uh, we were checking out some new offices in Auckland not so long ago, and we were up in one of the taller buildings, and it was amazing to look down on part of the North Shore and see that it is a little peninsula. You know, there's water on both sides. You, you, there is only so much land in that central Auckland and in North Shore. So we really are quite land constrained in Auckland and it's not until you kind of start looking at the maps and go oh that makes a lot of sense same in Wellington Wellington's a Wellington's a a mini Hong Kong who decided to to put Wellington there there's nowhere to there's just hills everywhere I've heard a great conspiracy theory about this (laughs) you'd be into that too (laughs) the original settlers of New Zealand were property developers and they chose settlement locations that would be in the best interest for their property portfolio Oh, yeah. And think about it, right? Think of Akaroa, think of Wellington, think of Auckland. All of them are actually places where they have geographic constraints 
that make property perform very well. Wellington just looks like a mini Hong Kong. Hills on one side, seas on the other. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not as into the conspiracy theories as you, Matt, but what I believe it would be more about um, is, is big port cities. You know, so um, Wellington's got a great port, same with Tauranga, same with Auckland, because when you're settling in a country, that's what you need. You need access to a port, and I would imagine, though I, I, I'm kind of um, talking a bit of smack here because I don't have the data to prove it, and I usually say that if you don't have the data to prove it, maybe it didn't happen, but... Um, that if you've got those big hills on either side, you've got a lot of shelter for your settlement as well. But also if you're a property developer, your portfolio is going to move. We'll park that one as a maybe. maybe. I'm looking forward to seeing where you're going to locate Horncastle Town. Yeah, well, no, no, because I'm a believer in cities. I don't think we we don't have the horsepower yet to make that happen. (laughs) Um, So, right, so... We've sort of briefly talked about how you choose a suburb. Um, Now let's talk through... The, the product, right? So obviously you have products from apartments to townhouses to standalone houses um, and standalone houses can be a smaller house or it can be right up to a, a big family home. Um, and then you have existing stock, which we somewhat touched on. We we as a business chose townhouses because we love giving the customer a fee simple title. It makes their finance significantly easier. We chose smaller blocks because they felt a lot more boutique. If our average development size is 10, um, normally split into say two blocks of five. So it feels a lot more boutique for the customer. And that sort of became the backbone of the company because of affordability, finance and location. Because the locations where you put a townhouse are obviously significantly better than the locations where you put uh, a family home or subdivision so maybe talk through those different options because you sell all of the above to your or not sell you recommend all of the above to certain customers what product would you match to different customers and why well, I mean, the one thing that I should disclaimer as well is that in terms of the actual selection of properties, this is where I kind of step out of the arena. Well, I tend to look more at the economics of it uh, and then allow people like Andrew Nickel, who's our, our managing director, director, our mutual friend, yeah. uh, uh, to select that because that's where they're really strong. But I think the main thing that we would look at, and it's important for people listening to the show to know, is that there is big uh, differences between different properties. Some properties like an apartment, uh, which I know you guys have developed some in the past uh, are really good yield stock. You'll get a good yield on that, um, but you won't get as much growth yep. within that. Uh, and so on the other hand, you can have properties that get a lot of growth in terms of over the long term, how that property price is going to move, but don't necessarily get as much yield. So again, it comes back to, well, what does this investor need within their portfolio? You know, yeah, So if, like a 60-year-old might be best for, suited with a high-yielding townhouse where they want to take the cash now, where someone a lot earlier in their investment portfolio that's got... 20 years a family home in the burbs might be something for them yeah so you might look at something like and that and then a Similarly. townhouse is good for everyone <laughs> oh man I know if I say it you're going to put quotes all over social media so I better not um, but yeah you're right so if you're you know 60, 65 you might look at something like a room by room rental you know you might look at at a product that is specifically geared to be high yielding as opposed to something that would be considered more growth stock um, where it is more standalone, fee simple those kinds of things that people that uh, really desire and will likely go up in more and value more quickly over time. Yeah, that's awesome. So we actually do have Blair here, but um, we only had two mics, so Blair's sort of been left out. Um, I'm just going to hand you over to him, but can I do the close? I've got a yeah, you can do the close. I've just been listening and enjoying, Ed. So my question to you, Ed, is um, give us a prediction. 
<laughs> yeah. A, yeah, you're an economist. I always like hearing economists' opinion on what's going to happen and then rank them based on their truths. Look, so property price, next five years, go. Oh, look, I don't want to give. Uh, actually, Come I will on. answer the question, but I will, I will do it in my data-heavy way. You can way. disclaim it, don't worry. Um, so these, those are the disclaimers. Look, uh, we, we dig into this a lot. It's one of my favourite topics. And the big thing uh, that I didn't quite go into is we are tracking where different regions are in their property cycle. Because what we know is a region that's in a trough is more likely to go through a boom period than a region that's currently booming. If you're already at your peak, you're not going to go straight into another boom, right? If you're in a standard investment cycle. So Wellington is coming to the end of its boom period, and we know that because uh, it is slightly above where it has been long-term compared to the median New Zealand house price. Now, that's quite different to a region like Canterbury, which by our estimates of that is 15% uh, below its long-term average compared to the New Zealand house price. So over the last 20 seven years, Canterbury, the median Canterbury house price has been about 93% of the New Zealand median house price. At the moment, uh, and I don't have my graph in front of me, but it's on the Opus website, is it's about 78% of the New Zealand's median house price. So over the last four years, that measure has declined quite a lot. So I see Canterbury as very undervalued compared to where it has been historically. Now, as long as nothing has changed structurally between uh, the relative Canterbury economy and Canterbury property market, and the New Zealand property market, we'd expect that to appreciate over in the medium term, so that kind of five-year mark. So when I'm looking and evaluating the regions that I think are probably underpriced at the moment, I'm thinking about primarily Auckland, Canterbury and Taranaki and Marlborough. Marlborough is about 6% underpriced compared to its long-term average. Taranaki about 4.25%. Uh, Canterbury is 15%. Auckland's actually at its long-term house price, but I would suggest that because a lot of the population is coming back into Auckland um, and we're seeing, seeing a higher proportion of New Zealand's population living in Auckland, that's probably a bit skewed. So we probably are seeing Auckland at the bottom of its property cycle and we're starting to see heat coming back in there. So those are the four regions I'm most hot on. The four regions I'm least hot on, excuse me, uh, Wellington, Otago, which is about 19% overpriced at the moment compared to its long-term average. Uh, and I believe Southland is about 11 or 12% uh, overpriced compared to its long-term average. Of course, those areas have just been going through uh, property booms, so we would expect to see uh, house prices level off over the next five years there. So so those are the kind That's of four really regions that I think are doing like really it, well. Like spread. Four regions that I think are doing really poorly over so the next like, year. So it's like your buy-sell recommendations. So do you have any closing statements before we wrap it up? Uh, look, I, I just say that I think it's really important that investors really think very carefully about who they are as investors and the type of investor they are. I know that uh, property investment education over the last uh, 20 years has been very focused towards the renovation type and, I th and trading type strategies and that works really, really, really well for certain types of people who want to want property investment to become their full-time job, who are uh, you know, who really, really want to get their hands dirty, who prefer the smell of paint compared to the, the look of the numbers. Um, whereas there are a different and emerging group of investors who are more interested in the spreadsheets as opposed as opposed to, you know, painting a wall or something like that. And both 
approaches to investment are perfectly legitimate, but it's just really important that everybody understands, well, what sort of investor am I and respects that decision? You know, I do see a lot of people, especially on social media, um, starting to to kind of get into fights about which is the best one. Look, there's, there's no one best one. There's no best one. Look, whatever's the best one is the one that works for you and the one that you can execute over the long term because the, the number one way to not make money and to lose money in real estate is to buy a property and sell too early. Completely agree. So well said, mate. Hey, it's been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Listen to the Property Academy podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like this one, but not as good. So now, as you guys know, there is a payment for this podcast. We don't run ads. Um, we don't blast any products down your throat. Um, and if you enjoyed this episode and you took value, we ask you to do one thing for us, which is share it with one like-minded friend. Now, if you didn't get value, don't bother. We don't need it. But I appreciate all the sharing you guys have been doing. I've been seeing it. I really, really appreciate it. Um, on SoundCloud alone, we've had 7,000 downloads and 1,000 downloads in the last seven days. And that's just on our SoundCloud account. So the podcast's really getting some momentum. And that's because of you, the listener. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. Have an amazing day.